Welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the inside track on the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. Discussed this week, Jose Font departs for a golden handshake in China, but was it a good deal for West Ham? Sergei Milinkovic-Savic has set Italian football alight for Lazio this season, and it appears it hasn't gone unnoticed in England and Spain as top clubs queue up for a summer fight for the Serbian signature. We give you the latest on Paul Pogba and its currently stormy relationship with Manchester United boss Jose Mourinho. And we look at two of the world's top goalkeepers in Thibaut Courtois and David De Gea and assess if Real Madrid will firm up their long-standing interest. So we start off at West Ham as a long-standing and established player bodes farewell to the Premier League. Duncan, who's off to China? Yes, the transfers never never end in the transfer window. Um, it's just before the start of the Chinese Super League season and um, the clubs over there are adding their foreign players um, before the kickoff, uh, which is next month, beginning of next month. And a uh, player who's agreed a deal to go to China is West Ham United centre-back and Portugal international uh, Jose Font. Um, he's going to newly promoted Dalian Yifang. Um, transfer fee will be five and a half million euros and Font will sign a contract for three years, um, which I'm told the salary will be four million euros net a year. Um, this obviously follows um, the quite amusing, I suppose, if you're not the subject of the, of the commentary. Uh, and it, comments that David Sullivan made in an interview with The Guardian um, in November, in which he was quizzed on West Ham United's transfer strategy, something that Sullivan has obviously been very active in throughout his co-ownership of the club, and uh, blamed purchases on Slavin Bilic, said they were nothing to do with him, and that his sons had advised him not to sign Jose Font, and not to sign um, Scotland international Robert Snodgrass. Um, Unsurprisingly, Font never played for the club again. Um, David Moyes took over, had just taken over as manager at that point, um, never selected Font. And and Font um, was instructed to find another club, and he's now uh, found himself a new opportunity in China, but will still, as far as I understand, still be central to Portugal's plans for the, the World Cup. So you, you wonder whether West Ham United have, uh, have missed out there in, in allowing a player who they, they had to um, battle with other Premier League clubs to sign go at, in a, at a time when their, their uh, Premier League future is not assured. <clears throat> the phrase that sends a shiver down my spine, Duncan, there was, his sons advised him not to buy those players because of course the owner's sons are very much qualified to run the transfer policy be it positive or negative of a Premier League club I mean Jesus which which century are we are we dealing in here that I mean this sounds to me like back to the dark days of the club owner with a camel coat and you know brown paper bags full of cash saying oh, come to us son we'll make you a star Except this is in reverse, where you know a co-owner of a Premier League football club is 
openly admitting that his sons, who probably picked up all the knowledge from playing FIFA video games, has said, don't sign Snodgrass or don't sign, sign Jose Font. Jose Font's a Portugal international who's got a fantastic reputation as a, as a very good professional, etc., etc. And as you said, Duncan, he was wanted by several other clubs and, as I remember, needed to agitate his way out of Southampton as well in the way that Virgil van Dijk had to. So it's just scary um, that that could be the case. Uh, and as someone, you know, who works in the business, um, I would be, you know, I would dread to be told by one of my clients that his son had advised him to not you know, buy this player or that player. Because um, I would like to know exactly what qualification uh, or indeed what scouting they had done on said target to the, bring them to that opinion. Yeah, just looking at the actual quote here, it's my kids begged me not to sign them, um, which <laughs> apart from what he's saying there, and I agree entirely with you, uh, what that says about West Ham United's recruitment strategy, to actually say that um, in an interview about a player who's, well, two players are still employed by the club because Snodgrass is on loan at Aston Villa is is quite an incredible level of unprofessionalism which is you know is going to damage the club potentially damage the club going forward um, and really doesn't place Sullivan in a very good light in terms of his involvement in transfer activity and you know as as we discussed in the podcast um, not long after we started we predicted that Slavin Bilic would um, not last long as West Ham manager because David Sullivan had decided to pull the plug on Bielic's transfer recruitment plans during the the summer window, um, and you know as a result they had that uh, big contretemps with Sporting um, in Portugal over William Carvalho's transfer, and because Bielic was still trying to pursue that deal, um, and Sullivan was saying go ahead and do it. But when it, when it came to actually putting bids into the club, those bids weren't going in and it ended up with, with um, an exchange of, of press releases between the two parties post-window talking about what had and had not happened, um, which is kind of collateral damage. More importantly, was that the, the owner of the club had decided to withdraw his support for his manager during a transfer window with the not surprising result that West Ham started the season badly um, and have still not dug themselves out of the hole they, they placed themselves in in that period. Guys, just on the Chinese market, where is that at the moment? Obviously, we saw a big deal with uh, someone like Oscar going across there and effectively it's prime. Is this more emblematic of the future kind of transfers we're going to see coming from the Premier League to China in terms of an older player, you know, 34 uh, moving towards the end of his career, going out there. Dalian are also negotiating with Atletico Madrid at the moment for Yannick Carrasco, a Belgian forward who's 24. So I, I wouldn't say it's, um, it means that the Chinese Super League is focusing on older players. I think the difference with China at the moment is they cannot spend as much money as they had been spending in the, in the last couple of years because... Um, that that kind of gross spending they got involved in, which really worried uh, European clubs, has been um, limited by the Chinese government in that they've imposed a 100% transfer tax on all purchases of, of foreign players. So, you know, even this deal for Jose Font, 5.5 million will, will actually end up costing Dalian 11 million as an effective transfer fee for them. And Carrasco, they're, they're talking about that deal being 30 million euros 
to um, to Atletico Madrid, plus in, including the, the payoff to Monaco, who, who still have a, a percentage of the of that transfer mm-hmm. deal. So that would that would effectively be a sixty million euro deal for um, Carrasco to in terms of transfer fee cost to Dalian. So. Which is big numbers, you know. <laughs> we, we shouldn't forget that e- even though the Premier League has gone into, you know, almost unbelievable heights of transfer fees uh, in the last year or two, 60 million euros as an effective cost is very high and, and not far off what Manchester City paid um, to sign Imeric Laporte from Athletic Bilbao. So uh, the money's still there, but the transfer t- fee tax has kind of cushioned European football in the sense that they don't have to worry that the very top players will get creamed off by the Chinese Super League for the time being. One of the interesting things as well, uh, Johnny, on that aspect very quickly is that given that um, uh, many, if not all, of the Chinese Super League clubs are either fully owned by state uh, either industries or companies or indeed part-owned by state, owned companies or industries, then that 100% uh, transfer tax, where's that going to? Mm, work that one out for yourselves. Mm. <laughs> More of the uh, Magari conspiracies after last week's Gamora chat. Um, let's move <laughs> on for that. Um, but Ian, you do have some transfer news of your own. It um, concerns a very, very talented young player who's um, taking Serie A by storm over the last season. Um, Serbian midfielder Sergei Milinkovic-Savic, known simply as Milinkovic uh, in Italy, 22-year-old. Um, best way to describe him for anyone who hasn't watched Lazio play this season or seen Milinkovic play, stature is very similar to Paul Pogba. He's 6'4", he's, he's strong upper body strength. He has that same physicality but and also has a, a, a vision um, of the game which uh, is very, very impressive for one so young. He... He can play the pass, he sees the space. He also plays very effectively a defensive midfielder um, as a number six, sorry, and he can easily play as a number eight. Has also single-handedly run games from the left side of a midfield three this season. Um, and you, you don't see that very often in, in top leagues where someone can have that amount of influence. He's chipped in with um, some remarkable goals, some, some very important goals, notably a couple against Abdoria. Um, when uh, when Lazio were two down, and anyway, as I said, if you haven't seen him, get yourself on YouTube or, or uh, any other um, video provider that's available, and um, and just get in Milinkovic Lazio, have a look at him. I spoke with his agent, the former Chelsea striker Matteo Kesman, um, in the past ten days, who confirmed to me that uh, he's had notes of inquiry for Milinkovic from Chelsea, Real Madrid, and Manchester City. Uh, my information uh, from Italy is that Lazio would be willing to sell the player uh, in this summer's coming window um, for to the highest bidder, basically. They did upgrade the player's contract, but he's only contracted until 2020. They've bought out his, um, his uh, 50% sell-on clause, um, which they had uh, from his previous club, Genk. Uh, interestingly, it was Alex McLeish during his time at Genk who signed Milinkovic. Um, and uh, they paid £7.8 million in order to prevent any sell-on percentage increasing with uh, a market value for the player looking around 60 to €70 million. Euros. So just one I want to flag up to all our listeners um, to look out for this summer. Uh, Milinkovic will be coming, I think, to either the Premier League or La Liga 
uh, and he will be uh, a star, I believe. Um, and someone who, Duncan, I don't know, would you think Manchester United might be interested in the player as well? He's, he's definitely on Manchester United's scouting list. Um, obviously, central midfield is priority position for them, has been for a while. Um, United have a shortage of numbers there. Michael Carrick's almost certainly going to retire at the end of the season. Ander Herrera's contract is um, in its final year. Don't know if the um, extension will be triggered. Um, waiting to find out if Marouane Fellaini will um, be renewed or not. So, and, and you know, Jose Mourinho's talked about how important it will be for them to, to reinforce the midfield. Um, it's no surprise that he's being scouted by Manchester United, given the extent of their scouting network and the the quality of clubs you mentioned there who, who have uh, put notes of interest in. Um, from what I understand, uh, he was considered uh, for a January purchase when Mourinho was um, looking at the possibility of bringing a midfielder in in January, but was was thought to be too expensive at that point. You know, as, as we um, talked about at the time, the club was allowing, indicating to Mourinho that he'd be allowed to spend up to about 90 million euros on, on, on three, up to three positions in January. So if I think Lazio's asking price, maybe you confirm this in the, in January was going to be 80 million euros. So um, he was felt to be too expensive and, and not experienced enough at that stage, but um, not impossible that given that they don't have uh, a definite solution for that position or those positions in the summer yet, it's not impossible that he might emerge as a target that Mourinho himself will say this is the one uh, to go for. Okay, guys, um, I think we're going to move on to the games in the Champions League last night and uh, on Tuesday, starting off with the Manchester United Sevilla game. Uh, some astounding criticism coming out of the media, from my point of view, Ray Wilkins especially describing Sevilla as a bottom six premiership club. I, for one, can't imagine ever Banega strutting his stuff at Bournemouth, but there you go. Um, what's your take on that? Well, it's a much nicer city than Bournemouth, I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> and given that Sevilla have have um, consistently been top four in La Liga uh, in the past five, six seasons, um, I think Ray might need to reassess his um, uh, his analysis of Spanish football quite quickly um, and, uh, and then make a, a more considered opinion on Sevilla. Uh, I believe that was the first time Sevilla had failed to score at home in the Champions League this season. Duncan, would that be correct? Ever. First Ever. Well, they, first there you go. against uh, Sevilla in that stadium in the Champions League. So I think that says a lot. I think um, there is a lot of bandwagon, but certainly a, a, a noisy um, uh, part of uh, the sort of critics of Jose Mourinho who any time uh, United fail to score... It's all about uh, the negative tactics. It's about how he fails to get the best out of his players. Uh, I saw the after-match press conference with Jose Mourinho last night in which he laughed about the notion that um, Alexis Sanchez had been given a free role and, and didn't understand uh, tactical discipline. I think that's ridiculous. I agree with Mourinho on that. I think Alexis Sanchez is one of the most tactical disciplined players there, there is, um, especially for someone of his talent. Um, 
uh, if you look at the difference between him and Mesut Ozil over their three and a half years at Arsenal together, if you want to talk about tactical and discipline, then you look at Ozil, not Sanchez. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it, either um, people grossly um, misunderstood or underrated Sevilla's ability um, or they simply just wanted to have a dig at Mourinho, which is, you know, week by week, something that happens and that he puts up with uh, to take Sevilla back to Old Trafford uh, with nil-nil. I think gives them a very good chance of going through and that would obviously um, bring them up to the same level as all of the other England English teams in the Champions League. Because uh, I also thought Chelsea's draw against Barcelona was very creditable as well, despite criticism of them. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't really um, agree with um, people who are criticising United for getting... I mean, if you remember... 10, 15 years ago, nil-nil <clears throat> away from home was considered like a victory. And it's only because if you concede a goal then at home, obviously away goals kicks in and then you, you've got a little bit more trouble on your hands. But nil-nil used to be the best result you could get. And I, I don't see how it's a bad result. I think, I think the tie's very finely balanced. And, and the, you know, the problem that Manchester United have going into the second leg is that you would expect Sevilla to score or have a good chance of scoring uh, against United. And then that obviously means they, they have to score two at home. But I mean, the idea that Sevilla away is an easy game is just bizarre. This is, you know, what we were watching last night were the last two winners of the Europa League playing against each other. Um, Sevilla won the, the, the Europa League three times in a row between 2014-16, and that run ended because they went into the Champions League. Um, you might remember that the last of their victims in, in that Europa League run was was Liverpool. So, so the idea of them being bottom six Premier League club is just crazy. Um, and you know, the general idea that a nil-nil result against the team of Sevilla's stature is a bad result is also very strange. And, and kind of, I think the English football is getting a little carried away with itself because it has so many teams in this season's Champions League and remaining in the Champions League and we, you know, Manchester City comprehensively beating Basel away from home and Liverpool comprehensively beating Porto away from home. Uh, Tottenham, for me, the performance of the, of the round from an English club in that they, they managed to come back from a horrendous start against Juventus to get a 2-2 draw, but still no guarantee they'll, they'll go through there. Um, just to, to put it in a broader context, in terms of where Spanish and English football are in Europe, six of the last nine Champions League have been won by Spanish clubs, and five of the last nine Europa Leagues have been won by Spanish clubs. And you have to go all the way back to 2012, to the last time England won the Champions League with Chelsea. And, you know, all credit to Chelsea for winning the Champions League that season. Um, brilliant response by the players, brilliant performances in key games against Barcelona and Bayern Munich, excellent management by Roberto Di Matteo. But we know how they won that, that Champions League and it was by playing conservative football and taking chances on the counter-attack, which is um, precisely the kind of stuff that's being criticised um, by a lot of the pundits at present who seem to think that if you don't go out and completely dominate a team and play on the front foot all the time and and as as Mourinho was alluding to let your wingers have and midfielders have no defensive responsibilities that's not good enough these days it's it, it really is kind of a strange situation we have ourselves 
in, in terms of the, the, the general commentary around English football at the moment? Two, two of the key stats <clears throat> from last night for me <clears throat> were that Sevilla had 26 shots, eight, only eight on target, and clearly uh, one absolutely outstanding, almost wor- a new worldly save from David De Gea, the second one, uh, another one just before then, kept United in in, in, in terms of the equal, in terms of nil-nil. It was De Gea's 19th clean sheet of this season. I mean, that's just incredible, especially when you consider his the defensive four or three in front of him is being changed on an almost weekly basis. <clears throat> and they're you know, we know that Manchester United and we know that Jose Mourinho has not found his defensive answer as yet. And as I've said before on the transfer window, you know, I don't see Smalling um, or, or Jones as, as Manchester United defenders. And yet they've played a lot of the games. So it just shows you how good De Gea has been to have 19 clean sheets um, in so far this season when he's playing, as I said, with an unsettled defence in front of him and against some of the top strikers in Europe, if not the world. So all credit to David De Gea. Um, and I think we, we all know and, and we <clears throat> that uh, Real Madrid are the club keeping an eye on, on him and his situation. And that will be something which we'll be discussing, I think, many times over the coming weeks and months because um, Real have now decided to change their goalkeeper um, this, this summer. Um, a couple of options that were open to them have now been closed. And it seems to be a straightforward choice between Thibaut Courtois from Chelsea and De Gea from Manchester United. I say straightforward. It's not because both players are under contract. De Gea's contract, uh, which he signed two seasons ago with a deal from to Real Madrid having fallen through, has no get-out clause. Courtois is the same. So it will take a lot of negotiating and a lot of money on Real's part to get either of those. Um, I think... Duncan, that Jose Mourinho has done a brilliant job in, in taking De Gea, doing the things Jose does best, telling him he's the best in the world, telling him he needs to add all the best trophies that in order to get himself um, to the the point where he can say he is the best in the world because he's got the trophies to back it up. Um, for me, Duncan, I think De Gea would be a better fit for Real than Courtois, personally. I think Manchester United have missed a trick with David De Gea in that they had the opportunity to extend the player's contract in the first half of this season while uh, Madrid were focused on signing the athletic Babau goalkeeper Kepa. Um, at that point, De Gea thought there wasn't, you know, the, the, the possibility of moving to Real Madrid in the summer had gone. And he was happy enough at Manchester United that he was encouraging the club to to offer him a new contract. And as as has been Manchester United's want with with players for several years now, they tend to leave these renewals late. And and the result of leaving the renewals late is you pay more money for the player and you and you leave someone like De Gea, who is clearly desirable to other clubs and has a club which he would see as being one that, that he'd prefer to go to um, because of their status and because it's being back in, in their own country, um, it, that then becomes a serious problem from them. I think the reason they haven't been renewing contracts is most of their players, as, we, as we've discussed in this before, aren't that desirable to other clubs and, and aren't getting offers from superior clubs. So then they don't really need to worry about contract renewals. They leave it till 
most of the time until the club decides whether they want to keep them or not. That's got its own little problems, but it's nothing on the scale of someone like De Gea, where they're, they're in the situation that most other English clubs are, maybe with the exception of Manchester City, in that they have to deal with the players' desire to leave and the possibility that Madrid could get him to, to try and force his exit in the summer and uh, then they might have to accept a sale. Um, it will be interesting to see how that develops because for sure Mourinho will not want to lose the, uh, the cornerstone of a defence, which, as you point out, is not where he wants it to be and not where the club wants it to be. Um, the back four is weak. You could easily make an argument for buying a new player in every one of the four starting positions um, because the back four is weak Mourinho sets his teams up against stronger opponents with a more conservative setup, giving the midfield and the wingers more work to do to try and protect that defence and you know we saw saw some of that last night and that he played decided to start with with two number eights um, McTominay and Ander Herrera uh, to, to shut down Eivor Banega for Sevilla because he, he felt that was the, the the focus of Sevilla's creativity and if he could close them down then they would limit the options for the opposition and we should also you know given that this is a daily record podcast we should we should mention how well Scott McTominay has played in that game he didn't look at all out of his depth I and mean, if you could make an argument for possibly up until the last five minutes of the match where Pogba having come on as a substitute started to look more comfortable that he was the best of, of Manchester United's four midfielders that they, they used last night, if you include Herrera in the short period of time he was on the pitch. And this is, you know, it's a young young player who was in nobody's um, estimation as a, as a player who would become a, a potential regular for Manchester United when Mourinho arrived at the club. And, and from a Scotland point of view, as a potential um, Scotland international and, and someone that Alex McLeish really should be... Uh, trying to get in for a senior cap as quickly as possible because he was born in England and uh, although he said previously that his preference is to play for Scotland, when you start, we've seen before, when you start getting regular um, appearances for a club like Manchester United, you can have the agent saying, well, maybe it's better for your career to, to sign for England, sign up for England or agree to play for England rather than, than play for Scotland because that's got more status and more earning potential down the line. So, sorry, Duncan, I was just calling Big Eck with that exact point. <laughs> <clears throat> Touch on Pogba there, Duncan. What's the latest on that? Well, I think you can you can see that the situation is is not good. Um, so we 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 broke the story last week in the record that that Pogba wanted his um, position, uh, wanted the Manchester United uh, tactics changed to accommodate him, i.e. he wanted to play on the left-hand side at the midfield three and he wanted to be shorn of some of his defensive duties. And that caused uh, significant problems with Mourinho, uh, as you can uh, will not be surprised about. Um, as we talked about in the podcast, there were, there were uh, efforts to resolve the situation ongoing last week. And there was a meeting, I'm told, between the two um, at Carrington, uh, which Mourinho went through um, Pogba's concerns and 
discussed how he should be utilised and, and was came out of that meeting uh, content and telling people close to him that the, the problem had been solved and that the essentially it was he, he felt it to be a, an issue with a young player who um, was overconfident and over-demanding in the way he should um, have the team set up, similar to some of the things that had happened uh, with him with the France national team and that they'd been he'd been asked to play in a two and not done very well and 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 got into a degree of dispute with Didier Deschamps over positioning and he he felt it would um it would resolve itself going on his intention was to put him back in the team you saw him give a press conference um on Friday in which he was protective of Pogba by um describing, talking mainly about media reporting and talking about uh, punditry and talking about uh, questioning where he should be played and what was best for the team. So it was a kind of classic Mourinho press conference performance in that he felt the issues were resolved with Pogba and now wanted to get him back on side and, and protect him publicly. Said he would be playing on Saturday and then Pogba called in um, sick on Saturday morning wasn't able to play, was left out of the lineup, um, went with the team to Sevilla and uh, was not selected with, with Jose picking what he felt was um, a more reliable midfield for the game and saying before the match that Pogba's um, decision or Pogba's calling in to ill before the previous match had left doubts about whether he was ready um, to play in this one. So it's, um, I think the situation's still open um, and certainly won't be resolved until Pogba's back in the starting lineup and and playing at the level he needs to be playing. And, and to be fair, it wasn't a great performance from, from him last night. I do think that um, <clears throat> Pogba is a, a young man who is, is quite immature. I think he, he needs uh, constant um, confidence boosting, whether it's in training, off the training pitch, through performances, etc., etc. Um, I've seen it in many players over the years, um, especially younger players who feel the pressure of, of a big transfer. And I'm not just talking about the money here because the money has nothing to do with them. It's the fact that he's gone from, uh, you know, playing at a Juventus side who were effectively walking over all opposition um, to win the Scudetto. Uh, into a Manchester United team who Jose Mourinho has been tasked with with effectively rebuilding. <clears throat> and Pogba went there believing that he was the cornerstone of that rebuilding project. Uh, clearly what's happened with the lax extensions coming in on more money, on more high profile, etc., etc., has knocked him a bit. He's maybe no longer the main man. He's not the man who people would fair possession to, which again is something which is an ego thing, but you can't get get away from um, when you're that age, and and so Pogba's let's say the, the, the buzzword in terms of these situations is reintegration <laughs> into the Manchester United team. Uh, I think will be quite a difficult one, but I think it's a necessary one for United. United are not a club, despite how rich they are and being the you know said that in the latest uh, Deloitte and Touche report, they're the most um, wealthy club in the world. They can't afford to spend eighty-nine million pounds um, or on on a player and then for it not to work. Uh, they will not be able to sell him for that same price because his performances don't merit 
the repayment of that price. I don't think there is a will to sell him at Manchester United anyway. I think we do see the potential in him and the investment in him has been, you know, as being wise in the long term. So I think that this is what it needs to be um, resolved as quickly as possible. United are still. Uh, got opportunities <clears throat> to to win trophies this season, and I think Pogba playing well and operating well in that in that team would be key to that anyway. You're a man close to all things Chelsea. How will Antonio Conte assess that first leg draw against Barcelona and the chances <laughs> in the second leg to turn the tie around? I thought Chelsea played well. I thought they the better in the first half. Um, they obviously played in a, a formation which had no recognised centre-forward, which is not unusual these days, obviously. They were undone in the end by what was a poor pass from Andres Christensen uh, into Leo Messi's path, which gave him the simplest of finishes, which was unfortunate because I thought overall they, they merited more. Um, I thought Barcelona were quite subdued on the night. They didn't play the, as expense, expansively as they, as they can or normally do. But then again, Chelsea have been a little bit of a bogey team for them in the Champions League. Um <clears throat> more recently than, than Barcelona were to them before that. So the problem for Chelsea now is that the open expanses of the, of the Camp Nou pitch um, uh, will cause them problems. Uh, I, th- I think they've shown this season already that they can be weak <clears throat> in terms of um, their positional closing down of both space and opposition players. Uh, so, so, some players in that team switch off momentarily that gives an opposition player a yard of space uh, or a yard ahead and on a, on a dribble to get into and that's exactly where Barcelona punish you so um, in terms of Conte I, I, I don't think even beating Barcelona or even winning the Champions League would rescue his job now to be quite honest and we saw what happened uh, to Roberto Di Matteo four months after he won the Champions League for Chelsea so um, in terms of what Conte thinks well he'll just want to try and put you know a, a, a win in a two-legged tie with Barcelona to CV so that he can make a case for his next job. Um, with regards to how it stands up to the other results of the English clubs, I think it stands up pretty well. Not as good as uh, Spurs' comeback in, in Turin. Um, probably better than Manchester United's draw in Seville. Uh, I don't think you can compare Man City and Liverpool's results against much poorer opposition um, to um, Chelsea's task and indeed Spurs' task in getting through this round. So, um, as you mentioned that before, Johnny, all the crowing about you know the uh, teams, English teams in, in Europe. Well, at this moment in time, three are sitting on draws and two are sitting on, on big wins where you expect them to go through. But the three draws, <clears throat> one's against Juventus and one's against Barcelona. So you can't really say that with any huge amount of confidence that all you know five are going to be going into the, uh, the quarterfinals. I think, I think it was a, I agree with you, and I think it was a very impressive performance from Chelsea. I think it was pragmatic, tactical football. It's the kind of stuff we, that Conte won the title with. Um, playing, you know, it's something tailored to the game, um, a good plan, some excellent performances from individuals, particularly William. But let down, interestingly enough, by the, the kind of poster boy of the, of the, of the infamous Chelsea Academy. Um, Andreas Christensen, who's the gone further than any of those academy uh, graduates. All those players have had so much money lavished on them for, well, for the for over a decade now, um, to establishing himself in the first team. And um, while Christensen is a good player, I think it's telling that something like that, which was a you know, very basic mistake to not to knock a ball across your own penalty area 
against a team of Barcelona's quality at that stage of a match when you have a, a goal lead um, in a Champions League tie uh, is, you know, it shows that when you, if you don't have the right players in those situations, more often than not, they'll cost you eventually. And, and Christensen, I think, reminds me somewhat of, of Chris Smalling in that he's, um, he has an athletic um, and physical requirements you'd want of a centre-back and can look very good for large periods of the game. But I keep seeing these kind of um, mental uh, errors that are, are too large for a player who's, who's expected to be a starter for a club of that magnitude. And with Chris Smalling, you know, that it's, it's been that case with him since he broke into the first team at Fulham and he's never changed. And I don't think, I think Gary, was it Gary Neville recently was, was making the point that once you see that happening again and again with the player, you realise it will never change. Um, Christensen's probably still young enough that he might be able to, to develop those skills and avoid those kind of mistakes, but you, you'd have to worry that he, he can end up going down that same path of not quite good enough for a top team. Hearing Conte defend him afterwards, Duncan, mm. I was very I was very sympathetic to that. <clears throat> he pointed out that Christensen, had, other than that, had had a very good game generally, uh, obviously playing against one of the most potent attacks in world football. Uh, they hadn't conceded until the Messi goal, etc., etc. And I was kind of in two minds. I thought to myself, yeah, but as a manager, you've, you've got to be you've got to take responsibility for his for his culpability to make that mistake and put him in a position where, you know, you think he might be physically and mentally tired and you keep him on the pitch rather than bringing on <coughs> Gary Cale, <coughs> excuse me, a more experienced defender, uh, for, to see the game out. But on the other hand, if you take Christensen off or you, or you, you don't play him at all, how does he get the experience against Barcelona to get better, to not make those mistakes or to make the mistake and then not make it a second time? You know, and it's a bit of a double-edged sword for managers. Christensen clearly has a lot of talent, um, but I agree, he, he, he is prone to those errors. I think young players are, especially in big games, I think they're not used to having <clears throat> that amount of, of pressure on them for 90, 94 minutes. And so at one point, they're going to make a mistake. And let's face it, you don't want to be making it against Leo Messi because he will 100% he will punish you. But if you do it against Stoke City or West Bromwich Albion, you might just get away with it. The point, the point you make, which is correct, is that if he continues to make it, it's unlikely to change. And I agree with that. I think players who are prone to that kind of thing, and it's usually goalkeepers uh, that we see um, in that kind of position, that they will, you know, they will throw two, three, four a season, and that could cost you between eight and 12 points. Um, or, in this instance, a place in Champions League quarterfinal. Yeah, look, credit to Antonio Conte for protecting his player. He has to do that in that situation. He'd do a lot of damage if he if he agreed with the journalists and said that he regretted playing him. You've got to note that one of the reasons why he was playing him is because he decided to use David Luiz as a as a scapegoat earlier in the, the season. So he decided to go to war with David Luiz um, and has barely played him since. In terms of mistakes, I do remember Christensen in the first half doing something very similar, a, very, a badly misplaced pass across his area, I think, which went out for a corner kick. Not, not quite as dangerous because it wasn't into the path of Iniesta, then Messi, but um, the pattern's there, unfortunately. Guys, it would be remiss of us not to touch on the game on Monday night when Wigan took on Man City, an astonishing game. Wigan obviously winning 1-0... <sighs> 
how big an effect will this have on Man City and Pep Guardiola, especially with regards to the Stramash and his comments to the media afterwards, which I think could be construed as slightly mean-spirited for a, for a club that's been so dominant and winning everything. How do you take his reaction to, to that game? I think you have to say it, it is disappointing that Manchester City, after the, the season they've had, um, the number of victories they've had, the, the praise they've had, that they go to a League One side um, and their manager ends up um, going after the officials for sending off a player um, for doing something he'd very recently asked officials to protect players from. It's a clear red card. Then has a go at the opposition manager. Um, has to be held back from him. And then you have um, the the team's star striker, Sergio Aguero, throwing a punch at an opposition fan um, post-match. Um, now, City have made the case that um, Aguero... Uh, believes he was spat at by the fan, which is obviously uh, something you don't want to see on in football. But in a broader sense, it's there's a there did seem to be a lack of um, humility um, about them in defeat, given that they lost to a League One side that that uh, I forget what the exact numbers are in terms of. Um, cost of, of squads, but uh, but quite phenomenal differences between them. Um, in terms of what it will do for Manchester City's season, I think in one sense it's a bonus for them because they don't have to play any more FA Cup ties. Um, I think the team is clearly tiring. Um, the team, you can, you can see from Guardiola's efforts in the transfer window to sign Riyad Mahrez that he wanted extra bodies in. He's aware that he demands a huge amount from his players on the pitch in terms of running in every match. And he's aware that he uses the same players almost all the time. Um, therefore, those players have accumulated a lot of miles this season. So being out of the FA Cup is going to help them. Um, I think one other thing it showed was that a slight sense of fragility when that lineup is broken up. So he did play a very strong team against um, Wigan, but he rested Kevin De Bruyne for the match and De Bruyne was missed. Now, you'd expect De Bruyne to be missed because he is such a good player, but I think the way City play, he's more missed than he would be in other sides because their play is so dependent on the quality of the passing and an individual skill to beat opponents. When you take links, key links out of the chain, it has a dis a disproportional effect than it would in other sides. When De Bruyne came on the pitch towards the end, they almost equalised. So again, that was evidence of, of how important he is for the team. But at least it put to bed talk of the quadruple. Um, we've already had the, the invincible season put to bed. And now we'll, we'll see. They're, they are, they're obviously going to win the Premier League. They have the opportunity to win the League Cup uh, in the, uh, at the weekend which will give them two trophies in two years, which is a reasonable return, but not fantastic. Um, can they win the Champions League and make that a very good return over, over two years? I don't think I would put bet, bet good money on them winning the Champions League at this stage, the way the, the, way the team is and the way the squad is at the moment. I think um, that, that City's response um, was poor, both on and off the pitch on Monday night. I think that comes from um, the players believing their own hype if you like, 
um, the opposite into that game um, with these convinced that they weren't going to lose. Um, and as time went on and Delph was sent off, uh, doubts entered the mind, both of the manager and the players. And so naturally, you know, human emotions run high uh, when things are going against you. You then perceive that things are unfair, <clears throat> whether it's the sending off, which I agree was a red, straight red card. Um, but, you know, little decisions as well, seemed to, they, they seemed to, they were protesting against and surrendering the referee. You just got a sense of, of anger and frustration building. And it was the idea that <clears throat> they, they could possibly lose a game which no one believed they would lose. And it is embarrassing <clears throat> as a professional footballer to lose to a League One side in the latter stages of the FA Cup because you do expect to cruise into the next round and then and keep and keep playing. So I, I think it might have a positive effect on their season. I think they've learned a lesson. I think the humility they failed to show on Monday night may well have been restored. I think it will also um, give them a renewed sense of perspective for Sunday's League Cup final against Arsenal, uh, a team who have shown themselves to be very, uh, very adept at winning finals. Uh, you think back to last year's FA Cup final against Chelsea when no one gave them a hope. And Wenger surprised us all by <clears throat> playing a tactic which was absolutely outwitted Chelsea in that final. Um, so Arsenal are, are a very, very uh, competitive opponent and one who maybe this now, to, today, tomorrow and on Sunday, Manchester City will take more seriously than they did uh, or they might have done had they thrashed Wigan 4-5-0. or five nil. Um, One very interesting statistic uh, is that um, in games competed against top six clubs this season, Guardiola has the highest percentage win rate of 83%, 15 points out of 18 against his top six rivals. Um, and amazingly, the second to that is Antonio Conte with 50%. So um, obviously Arsenal's a top six rival. Maybe couldn't, uh, Guardiola needs to, you know, not reassess, but to re-impress upon his players that they have the upper hand in this game and that Wigan was a wake-up call. Okay, guys, I'm going to move us on to the quick-fire round. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the top 10 transfers of all time. And I'm going to ask if they were a hit or a miss. I'm going to start with you, Duncan. Virgil van Dijk. Um, so we'll start with number 10 first, Virgil van Dijk. Um, well, it's early days to make a hit-or-miss judgment. But if you ask me to make a call based on the, the transfer fee, £75 million, the club he's coming from, status in the game and how he's played so far, you'd have to say it looks more like being a miss than a hit. And you will have to be exceptionally good at that price for it to be a hit. Ian Lukaku. Having watched a bit of the Brits last night, I'd say that him and his twin brother Stormzy are kind of on a sort of similar level. One, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Um, I think he's been very good this season in, 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 in you know, phases of the season. I think he needs to be more consistent. Too much to say it's a miss. I, I, I'd go for Stormzy, not with Little Mix. Maybe Stormzy with uh, Jay-Z. Gonzalo Higuain. Again, that's a huge transfer fee paid um, for a player who was already um, quite deep into his career. 90 million euros, I think that's the, the fee from Napoli to Juventus. Um, given that he was bought by Juventus explicitly to turn him into a Champions League winning team, and that hasn't happened yet and probably won't happen. 
you'd have to say miss. Ian, this is a tough one for you, mate. Ronaldo. Yeah, I can't even begin to say what a hit that is. I mean, just he has surpassed all records, hat-tricks, goals, titles. He single-handedly limped Portugal to the Europe, to be European champions. Um, that is incredible. I mean, you can't, you can't, you cannot say. Uh, he is the Beatles of football. Gareth Bale? Gareth Bale is um, an obvious miss. Um, a guy who's, I think in recent seasons, has, has barely managed to play half the games for Real Madrid and who Real Madrid have been actively trying to sell for some time now. Um, and I think it's it's indicative going down this list. We'll see more of it. And it also, if you look at some of the older purchases, for example, Kaká, it's how often these really big money deals don't come off. Cristiano Ronaldo kind of stands out in that you, no one will question whether that purchase from Manchester United was a good deal or not. As a record transfer, it clearly was. But every other one, there are probably questions over. Paul Pogba. Um, recent travails have, have meant that I think we question his, his attitude. Um, he has missed quite a lot of the season through an aggravated injury. And then he, he obviously got that suspension as well. I think the jury's out right now. I think he's got all the attributes and we know that and the potential, which is why Manchester United spent all that money on him. But I think at the moment, I don't think we can call it hit or miss. I think it's um, it's jury out. That's not the game, Ian. It's got to be a hit sorry, or miss. Sorry, sorry. All right. <laughs> in, that case, in that case, can I call on Gordon Jury? <laughs> As in jukebox jury. <laughs> to continue my musical theme. Now, all right, I'll say hit. Osmond Dembele, that's a difficult one, obviously, with his injury. It's not for me. That's not difficult at all. I think they they clearly overpaid Barcelona. Clearly overpaid for that player um, under pressure to bring someone in in the summer market after having Neymar forced out of their hands. Um, he's he's barely played because of injury. But um, what is for sure of all the players on the list, he has the least impressive signing on. Um, ceremony of any of them and if you haven't seen this <laughs> I'd, I recommend you go on YouTube now and watch images of Osman Dembele trying to play to play keepy-ups when he is unveiled as a Barcelona player you will not believe it if you haven't seen it yet Philippe Coutinho very early days Johnny you know it's only um what a month in his Barcelona career um only four appearances I think so far uh obviously um had his car towed and his house burgled as well last weekend, which is, um, <laughs> he must have thought he was back in Liverpool. Boom, boom. Uh, oh! <laughs> hey, you ain't Hit me on the firm, Gary. Calm down, calm down. That's my video, that is. Uh, so, I uh, missed so far, but again, let's, you know, let's not be too harsh in terms of what he's done so far at Barcelona. You were angling for the Anfield rap last week. Now, uh, the Anfield rap's going to be a rap in the face. Hey! Kylian Mbappé. Yeah, Kylian Mbappé, um, you have to say, his career so far, he's not put a step wrong. Um, so, yes, the fee was huge, 180 million euros. Um, but there's a reason why everyone wanted him last summer. And um, he's got youth on his side, he's got physical ability on his side, he's got technical ability on his side, he scores goals. And, and he keeps, he looks like he's going to keep getting better and better. So maybe... Maybe he can be the successor to Cristiano Ronaldo on this list in terms of an unquestionable hit. And finally, a man that we've discussed many, many times on this podcast, Neymar. Got to be realistic in terms of Neymar. He was not bought for 200 million euros um, by Paris Saint-Germain to win Ligue 1. 
it was bought to uh, bring the uh, holy grail of trophies um, to the Parc de France, which is, of course, the Champions League. Um, after their late collapse to Real Madrid in the first leg of the round of 16, uh, you have to say that that dream looks about dead for this, his debut season. But you know, Neymar is just one player in a fairly star-studded team. Um, you can't blame him specifically for, for that. I think anyone who's watched him play this season for PSG in the game will have been dazzled by some of the things that he's done in terms of goals and skill. Um, even last weekend, he did a remarkable dribble over the course of about 60 metres. Um, again, uh, other um, video providers are um, available, but if you get just you know Google that on your YouTube app and you'll just be overjoyed when you see it, I would say hit. I think before we go, we just mentioned the other big transfer news of the week, which is the swap deal between Henry McRae and, and Johnny McFarlane. And we, we, we want to ask our new permanent uh, signing how you feel about uh, emulating the butterfly man's punning ability over the next few months. Yes, I, I'm, I'm going to have to work on that. I think that's, uh, that's not where my talent lies, unfortunately. Is it, but I will we, try, is, is it true we got you, it was a swap deal plus a 10 on a packet salt for the crisp, is that correct? Yeah, well, I think what I would say is that the dealer record are happy with the move because the finances involved mean that the balance sheet's going to look at, for the Transfer Window podcast, is going to look a lot more healthy. <laughs> um, okay, gentlemen, I'm going to draw proceedings to a close. Um, to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. Duncan is at Duncan Castles. And Ian is at Garbo SJ. If you want the pod as soon as it becomes available, please subscribe at Audioboom or iTunes. And if you enjoyed it, please rate and review us on there too. Thanks for listening.